Hello and welcome to episode 2 of Teacher Ollie's Takeaways, the podcast in which I do a weekly summary of some of the things I've learned this week in education. This week I'm touching on six different topics. The headings are Teaching the Scientific Method, Is Growth Mindset a Hoax? Using Private School Instructional Techniques in a Public School, Does Class Size Matter? And How Do Visible Disadvantages Impact Student Outcomes? Let's jump straight in. On January 10th, Harry Fletcher Wood alerted me to a post, to a blog post from Michael Fordham. Harry's tweet said, Superb post from at M Fordham History on how we can teach students the discipline through a curriculum of case studies. In the state in which I'm currently teaching, Victoria, there's been a real push recently to get students to learn about the processes of the disciplines. For example, in physics, students are meant to learn how to think like a physicist. They're meant to make hypotheses and test these hypotheses in line with, in inverted commas, the scientific method. This kind of made a bit of sense to me, as long as students have the necessary background knowledge in order to comprehend how the scientific process will be working in such a case. But Michael Fordham really brought a few interesting arguments forwards against teaching in such a way at the high school level. His three key concerns were, one, disciplines are characterized as much by their internal difference as by their similarities. Two, there is no platonic ideal of each discipline. And three, generalized models of disciplines rarely reflect what happens on the ground. So essentially, Michael's saying that there is no real scientific method. When we say the scientific method, we're not talking about any one thing, but instead an ever-changing thing that presents itself in multiple ways at different times, and indeed at any one time in history. I'm going to read out three paragraphs from Michael's article. All of these points lead me to great scepticism about curriculum theories in history, science, or other disciplines that work by distilling the essence from those disciplines and teaching those. I'm not all convinced that we can teach children the scientific method in a general sense before they have learned a number of cases of scientific research in practice. His argument, instead of teaching the essence or the scientific method, is that we should be teaching students numerous cases and allow the abstraction or the general idea of what the scientific method is, to emerge from these multiple cases. The second paragraph. History teachers have produced numerous examples of this over the last few years. Steve Maston, for example, designed a scheme of work in which he taught his pupils how one historian, Eamon Duffy, had worked with a particular body of source material to answer questions about the impact of the Reformation in England. Rachel Foster had a similarly well-cited example where she designed a scheme of work around the way two different historians, Goldhagen and Browning, had interpreted the same source material, a report from a police battalion involved in the Holocaust, in quite different ways. In examples such as these, children are taught about a specific example of which historians have undertaken research. Over time, as pupils learn more and more cases of disciplinary practice, we can then teach them the similarities and differences between approaches, with us end with abstract ideas rather than beginning with them. One of his final paragraphs was, this means that I would suggest the following as an alternative way of teaching disciplinary practice to school children. 
rather than distill some general abstract idea about, quote, how the discipline works, we would be better off specifying a range of specific cases of disciplinary practice for children to learn, from which we can, as teachers, tease out the similarities and differences in approach that characterises our respective disciplines. I thought this was a fascinating approach and a really interesting way to go, go about it, and it links in quite well with the imaginative education um, work of, of Kieran Egan and Gillian Judson. The second article, Is Growth Mindset a Hoax? So on January 14th, Greg Ashman shared a tweet that said, this is an example of the kind of education journalism that we need more of. And he linked to an article on BuzzFeed by Tom Shivers. This original article was about the hype of growth mindset. And Tom talked about how growth mindset has been posited to be able to solve any problem from being able to help struggling students to bringing about peace in the Middle East. Tom went into detail dissecting some of Dweck's papers as well as highlighting some studies since then that have kind of cast a bit of doubt around the ideas of growth mindset. Here are some quotes. Scott Alexander, the pseudonymous psychiatrist behind the blog Slate Star Codex, described Dweck's findings as, quote, really weird, saying, quote, either something is really wrong here or the growth mindset intervention produces the strongest effects in all of psychology. He asks, is growth mindset the one concept in psychology which throws up gigantic effect sizes? Or did Carol Dweck really, honest to goodness, make a pact with the devil in which she offered her eternal soul in exchange for spectacular study results? Some other strong evidence that Tom cited was from Timothy Bates' research. Tom writes, Bates told BuzzFeed News that he's been trying to replicate Dweck's findings in that key mindset study for several years. Quoting Bates, he said, We're running a third study in China now with 212-year-olds, and the results are just null. Continuing on in Tom's article, Bates also said, People with a growth mindset don't cope any better with failure. If we give them the mindset intervention, it doesn't make them behave better. Kids with a growth mindset aren't getting better grades, either before or after our intervention study. Tom also wrote that, Dweck told BuzzFeed News that attempts to replicate can fail because the scientists haven't created the right conditions. Quote, Not anyone can do replication, she said. We put so much thought into creating an environment. We spend hours and days on each question, on creating a context in which the phenomenon could plausibly emerge. Scott Alexander, the person who was previously quoted by Tom Shivers, so is the growth mindset a shimmer? Is it really not all that it's hyped up to be? After I read this article by Tom Shivers that Greg Ashman had put out there and talked about as an example of the kind of educational journalism that we need more of, I was feeling a bit doubtful about this whole growth mindset idea, but in true form and encouraging us all to be more critical of education research and education reporting more generally, Scott Alexander replied. Scott Alexander is the author of the blog Slate Star Codex and the one with the sold her soul to the devil quote from Tom Shivers' article that I just spoke about. In Scott's response to Tom's article, he dissected some of the criticisms that Tom made Here's one example. It mentions a psychologist, Timothy Bates, who has tried to replicate Dweck's experiments at least twice and failed. This is the strongest evidence the article presents, as in Tom's article. But I don't think any of Bates's failed replications have been published, or at least I couldn't find them yet. Yet hundreds of studies that successfully demonstrate growth mindset have been published. Just as a million studies of a fake phenomenon 
will produce a few positive results, so a million replications of a real phenomenon will produce a few negative results. We have to look at the entire field and see the balance of negative and positive results. The last time I tried to do this, the only thing I could find was this meta-analysis of 113 studies which found a positive effective growth mindset and relatively little publication bias in the field. I guess my concern is this. The BuzzFeed article sounds really convincing. I was definitely convinced. But I could write an equally convincing article with exactly the same structure refuting, for example, global warming science. I would start by talking about how global warming is really hyped in the media. True. That people are making various ridiculous claims about it. True. Interview a few scientists who doubt it. 98% of climatologists. Believing it means 2% don't and cite two or three studies that fail to find it. 98% of studies supporting it means that 2% don't. Then I would point out a slight statistical irregularities in some of the key global warming papers, because every paper has slight statistical irregularities. Then I would talk about the replication crisis a lot. Scott goes on. Again, this isn't to say I believe in growth mindset. I recently talked to a totally different professor who said he'd tried and failed to replicate some of the original growth mindset work. Again, not published. But we should do this in the right way and not let our intuitions leap ahead of the facts. I worry that one day there's going to be some weird effect that actually is a bizarre miracle. Studies will confirm it again and again. And if we're not careful, we'll just say, yeah, but replication crisis. Also, I heard a rumor that somebody failed to confirm it. And then forget about it. And we'll miss our chance to bring peace to the Middle East just by doing a simple experimental manipulation on the Prime Minister of Israel. So for me, this was a really emotional roller coaster because I read Tom Shivers' article when I was like, oh, wow, growth mindset. It's really a shimmer. It's not all it's trumped up to be. But then reading Scott Alexander's really thoughtful and balanced reply really put me back in my seat and gave me some more perspective on the issue. I'm hoping that over time I'll develop more and more of this criti- ability to critically appraise research and articles myself. But for now, it's really, really encouraging and I'm very grateful to have writers like both Scott and Tom to help me question things that I've seen. Using private school instructional techniques in a public school. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one, but again, this is an article I came across through Greg Ashman, who tweeted on January 14th, Scaling Mount Improbable, King's Wimbledon, via Joe Kirby. He was alluding to an article by Joe Kirby, which talks about his visit to King's Wimbledon, a private college in the UK that has incredible results. Joe's article was giving a bit of a rundown on some of the instructional strategies and how they can be applied in schools in which students don't fork up quite so much money to attend every year. I really recommend people having a look at this article because it gives a great insight into how this school works. Something that was particularly interesting to me was how traditional many of the instructional practices are, especially the chalk and talk approach of many teachers. But I just wanted to highlight one interesting tip that I plan to be using in my own classroom in the near future. This is on teaching writing. Teaching writing is heavily guided, even up to sixth form. In history, for instance, starting point sentences are shared for each paragraph of complex essays on new material. Extensive written guidance is shared with pupils. Sub-questions within each paragraph and numerous facts are also shared. So it sounds like these students, in terms of their essays, are really heavily scaffolding right to the point of giving them starter sentences. This is something that I'm hoping to use, especially with my EAL students, when I'm trying to scaffold them to write science reports this coming year. 
Second last today is the question, does class size matter? A great tweet from the TER podcast on January 14th said, class size matters a lot, research shows. And this article is by Valerie Strauss. Valerie says, a new review of major research that has been conducted on class size by Northwestern University Associate Professor Diane Whitmore. Valerie talks about some new research, a bit of a meta-analysis or a meta-study on class size by Northwestern University. She mentions how the following policy recommendations emerged. Class size is an important determinant of student outcomes and one that can be directly determined by policy. All else being equal, increasing class size will harm student outcomes. Policy advice number two. The evidence suggests that increasing class size will harm not only children's test scores in the short run, but also their long-run human capital formation. Money saved today by increasing class sizes will result in more substantial social and educational costs in the future. Point three. The payoff from class size reduction is greater for low-income and minority children, while any increase in class size will likely be most harmful to these populations. Something we find in educational research more broadly is that this is always the case. Those who are marginalised and more disadvantaged, the impacts on them from any intervention will generally tend to be greater, whether it be positive impacts or negative impacts. Now, the final question is, why do small classes work? Again, quoting the paper, Valerie Strauss writes, The mechanisms at work linking small classes to higher achievement include a mixture of higher levels of student engagement, increased time on task, and the opportunities small classes provide for high-quality teachers to better tailor their instruction to the students in their class. Valerie concludes with, So, can we stop pretending that class size doesn't matter? I'm sure many listeners will be happy to be pointed in the direction of this article. And finally, how do visible disadvantages impact student outcomes? This article was shared on January 18th by my robot Twitter account called Robot Ollie, which is at OllieAutoEd. I've set up an app called Twibble to automatically tweet articles that come from several different websites that I know publish really good content on education and education research. This article comes from The Learning Scientists, and the title of the article is Social Class in the Classroom, Highlighting Disadvantages. Essentially, this article talked about a series of experiments that tested the impacts of teachers using instructional practices that highlighted who in a class knew the answers and who didn't, or who had finished earlier and who had not. Asking students to raise their hand to signal their achievement when they knew an answer highlights differences in performance between students, making it more visible. This can lead to students in lower social classes or with lower familiarity with the task to perform even worse than they would have. In other words, highlighting performance gaps with no explanation for the gap can make the gap even wider. However, and this is a really interesting point, Making students aware of the fact that some are more familiar with the tasks due to extra training can mitigate these issues. So the key takeaway is essentially, if there are disadvantages in your class, if you can talk about them in the class, this can help to close the achievement gap. A key thing for teachers to keep in mind. That's it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed the second episode of Teacher Ollie's Takeaways. Before we end, I just wanted to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people. And as always, show notes can be found at ollielovell.com. If you enjoyed the episode, please write a review on iTunes. It'll help more people to find the podcast. And I'd love any comments or ideas shared with me. You can catch me on Twitter at at Ollie 
O-L-L-I-E underscore Lovell, L-O-V-E-L-L. Until next time, keep learning.